Hello, welcome back. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Emily. We're the executive directors and co-founders of ATX TV. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This week, and coming up through the end of 2021, we're releasing exclusive and original conversations from our Season 10 Festival that premiered in June 2021. Please enjoy this week's release and tune in both here and on youtube.com backslash ATXTV for even more TV goodness. Without further ado, here's this week's TV Campfire episode from Season 10 of ATX TV Festival. Enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Morgan, Director of Programming for ATX TV Festival, and thank you so much for tuning in to Season 10. We are grateful, as always, to be partnering with the USC Annenberg, Norman Lear Center's Hollywood Health and Society for this conversation about the evolution of HIV and AIDS representation on television. We know that TV at its best is capable of not only entertaining, but educating and inspiring empathy as well. From Pose and Looking to ER in New Amsterdam, no matter the setting or time period, each person on this panel today has contributed powerfully to all three. Before we get started, I'd like to bring out Kate Langrell-Fold, Director of Hollywood Health and Society, to talk a bit about the resources they provide for tackling topics like this one. Hi, Kate. Hey, Jen. Hey, everybody. Um, super excited about this panel in particular. Um, I'm Kate Fulb, I'm Director of Hollywood Health and Society, and we're a program that understands the value um, and how storytelling can help inform and inspire viewers to make healthier choices in their own lives without losing any entertainment value. So the topic of HIV AIDS is near and dear to my heart. I'm, I'm old, and I'm old enough to remember the last pandemic, um, the HIV AIDS pandemic. And uh, uh, in the 1990s and in the 2000s, I worked with the entertainment industry to help tell the critical stories of HIV AIDS and to help inform audiences, uh, destigmatize the issue and debunk some of the crazy myths that were going around at that time. Um, today, although there's better treatment, HIV has not disappeared and it still ravages certain populations. That's why I'm so happy to sponsor this panel. So to learn more about what we do at Hollywood Health and Society, you can visit hollywoodhealthandsociety.org. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Jen. Thank you, Kate. Uh, now I'd like to introduce our moderator, Manuel Betancourt, who has written an incredible piece about this very topic that you can find right now at vulture.com and whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, and many, many more. Thank you so much for being here, Manuel. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I'm very excited about this. Like you said, I, I spent um, a good like a couple of weeks looking into the history of HIV and AIDS on television, and um, I'm so honored to be inviting over to the panel uh, a bunch of people that I got whose work I, I greatly admire. So I'm going to just bring them in and have a conversation start right away. Um, so we have Neil Baer, uh, writer and executive producer uh, at ER. Hi, Neil. We have Stephen Canals, creator, showrunner, executive producer, and director of Pose. Hi, Manuel. Hello. Uh, we have Michael Lannon, uh, creator, writer, and executive producer of Looking. Hey, Manuel. Uh, we have Daniel Francesi, actor from Looking. Hi. Hello. Uh, and last but not least, we have Graham Norris, a co-executive producer, writer from New Amsterdam. And there's Graham. 
Can you hear me? Yes. Wonderful. My apologies. I'm at my father's house for the weekend, and it has uh, been a bit of a ride trying to join this panel. I'm curious to hear everyone's first, first memory of seeing an HIV AIDS storyline on television. So for me, it was the TV movie and early Frost with Aidan Quinn, Jenna Rollins, Sylvia Sidney. And the depiction was uh, forthright and really of its time uh, about a young man with uh, AIDS and his grandmother's support versus the rest of uh, his family and their coming together. Um, what was typical then was to show a white man and his family, and it took a number of years before other depictions occurred. But that was the first, and it was quite powerful to see that. And then I went on to medical school, and then I saw it in reality, because I was in medical school from 91 to 96, and it overlapped with ER. So it was, we could do nothing, and then we could do everything. And that was really the cusp of ER, because when ER started in 94, we really didn't have anything. AZT, but that didn't work. And then suddenly in 95, 96, we had antiretrovirals. So it was an amazing opportunity to do stories that were uh, in the first year, sad stories um, because we couldn't do, do very much. And then suddenly stories where we could do a lot. So that was the beginning. I was really fortunate to be able to do that. Steven, how about you? My earliest memory uh, is Degrassi. And it's interesting because I, I just did a quick search because I was like, I thought Degrassi was a Canadian show and it is. So I don't, I, it might've aired on PBS because in my memory, that's where I remember seeing it. Um, and that was, the, that was the first time I remember seeing um, a character living with HIV and other than being the first, I think the reason that that specific um, representation was so moving and jarring for me was that it was a young person because, you know, for me growing up in housing projects in the Bronx in, you know, I was sort of right in the middle of, of ground zero for this pandemic. Um, my understanding of it, even at five, six, and seven years old as a young boy was that that was a disease for adults. Like it never occurred to me that young people could also be impacted by HIV. Michael? Yeah, I think I was thinking about this. I think it was Mr. Belvedere and like <laughs> was, I don't know if you guys remember this, but yeah, me too. Yeah. Wesley <laughs> had a friend who um, I think he was in like a school play with and but suddenly, I don't, I can't remember if Wesley had to take over his role or something happened, but it came out that he uh, uh, was HIV positive or had AIDS at that point. And um, I remember, I think it made an impact because they were white suburban boys around my age. And like, uh, but I remember not really connecting that it had much to do with me. Like at that point in my life, I think I was like, I, I sort of, connect, I remember having a good feeling about Wesley. Cause I think he was sort of a like sarcastic and difficult character. So I remember like his moment of like kind of coming around and um, 
embracing a character with HIV, I was more connected to that side of what was happening, you know, like um, rather than really connecting to the experience of what it means to be living with HIV. And it was, you know, it was a Ryan White sort of inspired story. And, um, and so it was very powerful and also didn't connect much to me in some critical ways too, you know what I mean? Until later. Yeah. How about you, um, I think uh, Mr. Belvedere, I saw that episode with the Ryan White story. I definitely saw that. Um, but I think when it really resonated with me, like when it really hit me hard was Pedro Zamora on the real world. Uh, that was when I felt like I knew somebody um, and I cared about somebody. I cried over Pedro and I felt Pedro's pain uh, more than I think I did being aware. How about you, Graham? Um, I was really taken aback when I started trying to think of an answer to this question by that there was not, not uh, something that felt like the initial thing. And I was uh, trying to look through the internet to see if I was forgetting something. And the answer is not until I was an adult. I think probably not until around like looking or like a later season of Brothers and Sisters when Ron Rifkin's character well into adulthood. And this is despite growing up, I'm from the Bay Area. I had family members for when I was very young who had HIV. And it was very much something I was aware of in part of my life. But I think if you were too young for the initial spate of sort of very true life, you know, the Ryan White story moment when that was happening, it was just even then not depicted very frequently and just very all too easy to sort of just waltz right by. Uh, so really the thing that struck me was that like my answer to that really was nothing was almost the first time I saw it. Not until I was a full on adult man into, you know, the rel very recent history, 21st century. Well, I, I want to want to take us back and I, I like that you've sort of covered a, a nice sort of arc of how these stories have sort of, um, you know, I, when I was trying to think of my own, I, I think back to these like very special episodes sort of in the 90s that I'm like, I was when I was doing research, I was like, I must have watched this. Like I watched 90210. So I've obviously must have seen those episodes. But yeah, Graham, like said, like sometimes you don't remember them. Um, but uh, Neil, I wanted to start maybe as you were describing, you know, ER was at, at, at sort of at, at the center of when these stories were, were changing. And I'm and I wanted to hear from you, you know, how what conversations were happening in the writer's room and what the reaction from showrunners and from executives and at the network um, to get these stories um, sort of on ER and sort of what with us, what with us like? So I was a fourth year medical student when we started and I was in the closet until eight years ago. So I tried to, I say I tried to queer ER and then SVU uh, and then all the shows I've done um, while I was in the closet. So I had, a lot of patients who had HIV when I was in Boston. And so I would draw on those experiences. I did this episode once about a guy who comes in with, a, with hiccups in year one, my first episode. And the last line, line is who'd have thought uh, uh, hiccups would you know, lead to this. And the answer was he had um, inflammation of his liver and that was causing the hiccups because he, he had AIDS. And so, there was never any pushback from NBC. I think possibly because the show was a big hit. And so they let us do what we wanted. And we did. We did a, um, an arc with Lucy Liu, uh, 
where she um, comes in as a mother with HIV and her baby, Che Che, has HIV and dies of AIDS. And that was in year one, I think. Um, and it was really powerful. I remember doing that and drawing on, you know, I remember doing an episode uh, where, you know, somebody came in, as I said, in the first year and there was not much you could do. And then suddenly you could do things. And so that's what inspired us in the room to take Gloria Rubin's character, Jeannie Boulay. And she's written a lot about this and her family members with HIV and the impact it had on her. She really was wonderful and still doing work in this area with women of color. And it was really uh, an opportunity I'm grateful for because we got to show somebody uh, ongoing for several years dealing with HIV and Tony Edwards' character looking in her file and all the fears that came out of it and needle sticks and all the things we didn't know really and we were grappling with those things in 94 95 96 can a healthcare worker treat you who had, who is hiv positive i mean it was really such a an incredible opportunity and everybody in the room was supportive of it there were um various one time there were two of us who were who were queer but then then it was me but i as i said i didn't come out so until much later, but I did make Laura Innes' character a lesbian on the show. And so I was like, hmm, that'll be fun. So, uh, and, and she was the one who was very supportive of Gloria's character in saying, this is our ER. I remember I, I did this episode with Paris Barkley, who's, who's gay. And that was really kind of a turning point for us because, you know, we really tried to dispel those, those myths. Now, the one thing that I really regret on, uh, in that storyline was that um, we ultimately said she got HIV from her husband, played by Michael Beach, um, because he had sex with lots of women. And I got, um, uh, you know, letters, because we got letters at that point from particularly black women saying, who are you kidding? So to, to um, make up for what I think was wrong, really, and what we, how we handled that ultimately, uh, on SVU, I brought Michael Beach on as a sports agent with HIV who's in the closet and on the down low and infects his wife and and the consequences of it. So that was my way of making up for where I think we did fail on ER. Um, there was a lot of pressure on us not to really say, you know, that, you know, maybe Michael Beach's character was bi. And so this is how I tried to address it now. I think we don't have that problem. And when I did Designated Survivor, so, you know, all these years later, um, I had two queer black uh, men, one HIV positive, and we were able to do undetectable equals untransmissible. And that was really, you know, gratifying as well. So, and Netflix has, was like, yeah, do, do, you know, make sure, you know, thanks to Hollywood Health and Society for all these, all this support for years, make sure it's accurate because people learn from it. So I guess um, lots of support. I was very fortunate, but you know, what's interesting is there haven't been too many shows. Like there are shows that feature, you know, as looking and post, you know, a queer life. And I was trying to think of, and maybe, maybe the other panelists know, can answer this, like what, what shows kind of like an ER sort of a, that are not sort of focused on queer life have had HIV positive characters as something that happens 
in the world. And, and I couldn't really think of any, I know as, as lead characters, not like as this is a story for this week, because you, you know, I'm looking and pose certainly major story. I mean, that was, you know, the lives of these, these characters. So I, I'm still grappling with that and how we can push forward. And then also how we can push forward on the, the di disparity that Kate mentioned, you know, about half of all black men who have sex with men in the South are HIV positive. And it's just a, it's a travesty. So how do we, how do we tell those stories now so that we can, you know, address the issues that still are out there? Yeah. And I think maybe this is a good sort of transition because I think one of the things that uh, I appreciate about ER or looking about Posen as you were talking about is we get to see these characters and sort of not sort of like just jumping in for one episode, but we sort of get to follow their lives. And at times that's also what makes us sort of feel so, so attached to them and sort of feel for them. Um, Michael, I wanted to hear you talk a little bit about um, creating the character of Eddie and bringing him into the fold uh, of looking and sort of what, what, what was the, the reasoning and sort of what, what, what was he bringing to the, to the fold and to this, to the, to this ensemble? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of joy for one thing, thanks to Danny. Um, I this think- This face, this face, no. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it was like a central kind of paradox from the beginning of the show was like, how do you um, talk about, how are we gonna talk about HIV um, and not have it define or dominate characters or storylines like how do you balance like that critical part of the queer community with um characters who are living full lives and are not defined by um uh living with hiv um so i think one of the things we kind of landed on was come coming at it from a couple different angles and like for eddie um, I think we'd read a couple articles about um, folks who had uh, tattoos. Um, I believe there was one in like Butt Magazine. Um, uh, and um, we thought that was a really interesting way of like uh, claiming um, living with HIV and empowering yourself and, and not living the closet and not living in shame um and so i think that was like a way f we wanted to have a character like eddie who was not living in shame and and whose story was also not based around that but definitely we could talk about and then i there, we also had an episode where um jonathan groff's character has something of an aids panic and um that was something that we had been talking about from the start of like because I think that is an in important thing to cover um, and talk about. It's a very common experience, but how to do it without, um, um, you know, with recognizing the, the stigma that AIDS panic can create for other people. Um, so um, I think that was one I, way of talking about it was like coming at it, like having this, moment of AIDS panic and then also having the counterpoint of a person who had moved through their AIDS panic and it felt like they were living with HIV in a comfortable way that didn't define them. Yeah. 
And Daniel, what, what felt new about um, Eddie uh, when you saw him on the page? And then when you, because uh, I know that you sort of dove at first and you were also working and reading up a lot about sort of, um, sort of Eddie was, and working. It, it was super serendipitous for me. Uh, first of all, I don't know if you remember, Michael, you told me when you, we went to breakfast and you offered me the part, but you said something that resonated with me the whole time was that uh, Eddie was going to be HIV positive and he wouldn't be loved in despite of it, but maybe even because of it and how he handles it. And I thought that that really was very poignant to me. Um, that hit me like hard, even when we met and sort of um, gave me the perspective to approach Eddie that way um, as somebody who is just fully living his life after maybe uh, catching himself in a place where he felt dark for a minute. And <clears throat> I think that approach was exciting. The fact that I, I then, everything was sort of like a whirlwind because I, um, I had a friend who became HIV positive uh, right before I got offered this part. And I was speaking to my friend who is Elizabeth Taylor's grandson, Quinn Tivy, um, about how I can help get my friend who then locked himself in his apartment and kind of didn't want to leave and wasn't getting proper medication. I'm like, there's gotta be something that could deliver him meds. So I, I, I was dealing with all of this at the same time I got offered the part. And so I met Joel Goldman, who at the time was the managing director of um, Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. He, and Quinn was meeting him. Um, so he took me to the meeting when they were getting together for, in person for the first time. And I told Joel, I said, I'm not supposed to say anything yet, but I'm going to be playing an HIV positive character on HBO. And so I was able to get a lot of information from Elizabeth Taylor um, AIDS Foundation about people, the state of today's prevention and treatment, you know, and then in addition to that, um, Joel talked to uh, Glad, who informed me that I was the first character since Gloria Rubin, since Neil had um, the first main storyline of a person with HIV in six years. And the fact that since we found that about HIV and AIDS, the rise, the, the infections, the amount of infections were always lowering since we found out about it until it stopped being on television and then they started rising again and they were that to me that was such like a lesson on um on uh just representation and that these storylines had to be told and the statistics that we had like you know over million, millions of people living with hiv and then no storylines and what that and how that did and how that was affecting community because as we know, in our country, a lot, especially in the southern states, a lot of uh, kids aren't getting comprehensive sexual education. And, you know, Joel was telling me that there were even some uh, kids I talked to in states like Alabama who didn't even know what HIV was. And to me, that was so alarming growing up in the generation where we, it, we, we did have those very special episodes and it was told everywhere. But the fact that I had the tattoo and the, uh, that Eddie had the tattoo and that he was so... Uh, I, I, just proud of the way he could handle it. It gave, I, I knew that his ability to do that would give other people the same type of courage. And, um, you know, that's a lot of the feedback that I got when we were filming. I mean, I, I talked to a lot of people. I had, uh, I hosted a Texas bear roundup. Um, it was like a bear event. And this uh, guy came over to me and he was an Eddie bear. He was like, I'm in a Sarah discord discordant relationship. He's like, and I will never, he's like, hopefully the relationship I'm in will last forever. But if it doesn't, I will never date another person without making them watch looking first. 
He's like, because it explains everything that I've ever had a difficult, a difficult conversation trying to have with somebody from a perspective that I agree with. And I just thought that that's so empowering and so powerful um, and so freeing, you know? And on top of that, uh, to Michael and the, and, and the other, and the rest of the team's credit, like Eddie was so sexual. Eddie wasn't like reserved because of it. He was so like, like, out, like, so, um, just a fully realized queer man who could like sexualize himself and, you know, be the only thing he was closed off to was love at the time, because I feel like, you know, he's been disappointed by the stigma that is surrounded around that. So I think that that's what, um, you know, made it exciting and original and new and fresh for me because all of the HIV storylines that I had seen were real sad and were also, you know, um, more about, tolerance and understanding and um and awareness than it was about uh where are we today what can we what, about survival about adapting about um living yeah and i, I think, think that's a oh i just want to add real quick that um i think we we it was really important to us i mean danny was so great in that role and we talked about how important it was that uh Danny's energy is so big and Eddie's a big guy. And that physically when we wanted to counter the images of what a person living with HIV is that you don't even have to talk. You can just see them and see like a big vibrant guy who is the opposite of a lot of like images of sickliness in the past. Um, so I think on just that basic level, um, that was something that was really. Also to, to add to that real quick, prep like i didn't even know what prep was when we started we were the first show to talk about prep and I, I mean to the point where i was like this exists like it was so exciting to talk about that and um sort of almost like debut it on television and like be able to like i went on the doctors and a couple other shows and even when i was on the doctors they were all coming at me anti-prep you know what i'm saying like it, it was still so very new like um and i think that that was it, it was nice to deliver new information about health to the queer community via like such a beautiful storyline. And still, Danny, the, it's one out of four people are on prep in the U.S. Like in New York or other states, it's really high, but across the U.S. and particularly in the South, in some states, it's not. You know, it's it's, it's not. Yeah, there was general practi practitioners don't even discuss it or talk about it. You know, I had a friend who was trying to get on it recently, and his doctor was like, "Why? Like, why do you want to be on it?" Like that, and he was just like, "You know what? If you don't understand." a new doctor like you know and i think that it's storylines like these that help you know let people know that kind of get that information in the door you know so, um so important it's like even with hpv which um we have a vaccine for a lot of gay men haven't had the vaccine because their doctors just don't offer it to them they offer we offer it to kids but but we can offer it to adults and i think the point you made about the the positive elements of his character and his life. I went to John Wells in year 14 of ER. I was long, I, I was long, I had already been off for seven years and asked him to bring Gloria back to show that she was living a vibrant, healthy life. And he did. And it was amazing. And Gloria said that it was, the response was spectacular that people were like, cause you know, everybody loves your character and they, we, you know, we live through your character and the characters we write on TV. And so to have Gloria come back and be, you know, a caregiver, a doctor still doing all the things, having adopted a kid was really, really critical. 
I think it's important to mention when we're talking about television and HIV history to talk about 9-11, because I really think that when I've done research and thought about it, like the turning point for um, HIV was 9-11. Like people were all wearing red ribbons every year to the Oscars until 9-11. And then it switched to be about, you know, about that. Like America had like a really uh, heavy cause. And then when 9-11 sort of became history instead of the current moment, um, we just forgot. We had, we moved on to other important, um, uh, you know, uh, LGBTQ causes like trans voices and adoption and marriage and things like that. But it's, it, 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 it's not to say that those stories still aren't important and we need to continue to con- obviously voice them because look at the effect that it directly has um, to them uh, in media. Yeah. And I think this is a good segue to think about, you know, in, in thinking about joy and survival and seeing these stories um, sort of really represented and sort of correcting kinds of storylines that we've had, you know, Stephen poses the first thing that, that comes to mind, you know, having seen Blanca go through her journey all these years and seeing Prey see, like follow through. Um, I wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, how, how intentional was this, was creating Pose as a, as, a, as a corrective to the kinds of stories that we may have gotten about the 80s and the 90s back then, but now with the hindsight of, you know, a couple of decades worth of information and knowledge. Yeah, I mean, the the show is is corrective. It's um, reparative. I mean, the reality is, particularly for me as a queer Afro-Puerto Rican, like I grew up in... I grew up in in New York City. You know, I grew up in the South Bronx in housing projects in the 1980s where, you know, I was not seeing myself reflected. And to be quite frank, I really don't see myself reflected on film and TV now. You know, like I'm still sort of like, where where am I? So, um, you know, it was critically important for me to craft a narrative where I was taking the lens, which has always been firmly planted in one direction and just shift it 15 degrees. You know, I think in the case of, of pose, you know, the reality is that Black and Latin and Afro-Latin people were also living in New York City in the 80s and the 90s in the height of the epidemic. And we've just been completely erased from the narrative and from the experience. Um, And so it was really critically important on pose to recenter recenter folks of color and to also include trans people in that conversation as well. Um, you know, I, I also, as a lover of film and television, am hyper aware that historically uh, these narratives are always rooted in our trauma. You know, so regardless of your race or your class or your ethnicity, uh, you know, the reality is that we always see typically cisgendered queer men dying, (laughs) you know? And I think, you know, to both Michael and Danny's point, like I think what was so, what was really beautiful about looking and that was a show that was on when I was working on my MFA in screenwriting at UCLA. But at the time that was so powerful to see a narrative where there's a character who's living with HIV and is not surviving, but thriving. And so I carried that into my work on Pose, you know, so it isn't by chance that in the pilot 
Blanca says, you know, I want to leave a legacy behind, um, you know, and pray tell tells her you have to go and get a bigger dream. And to Michael's point earlier, you know, that our narrative isn't solely focused on their status, you know, but that their, their story threads throughout these, these previous three seasons has been completely rooted in their experience as human beings, you know, it isn't a story about, it isn't solely a story about HIV. It isn't solely a story about being queer or trans. It's about being a human. It's about this beautiful experience that we all are having called life. So I think one of the things that we were, um, that I'm hearing is that we can go back and we should be recovering this history and we should be sort of looking back to the early days of the pandemic, but also how do we make it current? Um, and Graham, I wanted to ask obviously about you know, the legend of, Howie Kornmeyer, which I think is, is a good example of how to do that. So if you could tell me a little bit about how that episode came together and what you were sort of trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, the, ins the inspiration of the piece was very much uh, as we all were writing through a current pandemic, thinking about, well, you know, there was one not that long ago and there's lots of people around who you know, there's for whom this is, whether it's a re-traumatizing experience because, oh my God, it's happening again, or the more uh, hopeful outlook, you know, voices of wisdom, of perseverance, you know, what is it like to come through on the other side of something like this? And particularly for the, uh, the people whose job it is, if you work in a public hospital, to help people get through this, you know, what is it so you get to do good stuff about what does it mean to be a good ally and things like that. And so for me, as we started working on it, the goal was to try to find that array of stories that sort of were almost a conscious homage to the sorts of stories that some of the other panelists talked about from back in the day, the sort of uh, the classic AIDS stories of, you know, the, the, the homophobia, the persecution, the I can't see my loved one in the hospital at the end of their days, and to slam that right up against what uh, HIV looks like now which, or at least what the uh, perspective of what HIV looks like now of things like how many people in younger generations really don't think of it as a big deal, mm. which is a, sort of almost a shocking thing to see right next to each other, a generation for whom it was the defining trauma of their lives, uh, the, and almost an incredibly for good and ill, uh, almost definitional in what it meant to be a gay man living in America and a lot of parts of the world at that time. And now there's lots of people who, as one of the plot lines in the episode dealt with, get ill because they don't realize that HIV being manageable is not the same. You still have to manage it. You still have to actually do something to me. You have to take your prep. You have to actually do this stuff. It's not nothing. It is serious. Um, and trying to weigh the things of wanting to depict like you can live a wonderful full life now more than ever, but while also paying heed to the fact that you actually do have to take it seriously. And the, with the way that HIV stories have, as people have mentioned, uh, dipped in how often we see them, that it has created, I think, a sort of a vulnerability to people not really fully understanding that this is actually still a thing. Uh, and of course, one of the best things with Howie Kornmeyer is we had the incredible good fortune to get the actors, uh, Andre DeShields and Steven Spinella to be in the episode who are, you know, out lions in the, in both with connections to, uh, you know, iconic queer works and to get them to be in it and to sprinkle some of that magic and actual living history was, uh, for me, 
um, as uh, someone who, you know, coming up in their wake uh, was a sort of a, a, a way to try to tip the cap to the people in the entertainment industry and in the art industry who actually did a lot of work to help, you know, who were the people actually willing to put their skin in the game about representation, be like, I'm here, I'm out, and I'm going to live even when there is a lot of pushback versus for me, where I had a moment while on set of I am an out writer. Um, I'm right now uh, saying this from the home of my out father. Uh, and with my two kids are in the other room that I have with my husband and no one on set blinks twice. You know, that's uh, maybe the out father part that sometimes gets people to blink twice. <laughs> but usually it's just, but it's really, it, that's cocktail party chatter. It's not a scandal. And it's just what a, what a miracle that the world has come so far. The one other thing I would want to say to touch on something that some of the other panelists spoke to so beautifully is that there are other facets of the HIV epidemic currently about the the incidents in the trans population, uh, you know, the the affordability of PrEP, uh, the way that uh, a lot of undocumented people, especially during the Trump administration, were being bullied away from going to get their medication that they had a right to, that they would not get deported for asking by being intimidated to thinking that they would mm -hmm. deliberately. You know, these are the scandals of the present day. And because our episode had this sort of rubric of the past and the present, some of these things that are very of the moment and were, we had less room for it than I wish that we did. And I think it just suggests like how important there's, how much work there still is left to do. There's a lot of big emotional live wire, important political energy that needs to be spent on getting these stories told and getting all of these people who are not the classic sympathetic, you know, uh, to mainstream America, uh, pale white guy dying beautifully in the corner sort of stories that was the entryway to this. That's like, this is like happening right now to a lot of people who all deserve to be the heroes in their own stories. And uh, hopefully next season or something, we'll get to do an episode that gets more of that. Okay. As we move forward, what else do we want to see? I feel like we're at this sort of impasse as we're talking about, you know, that we that we need sort of to broaden these stories and to make them, maybe bring them into the 21st century. But I'm curious if, what is it that you're seeing? What is it that you would want to continue seeing or want to see more um, about Before these Before we, we address that, can we go, I want to go back to the question you were posing about taking the time to reflect, you know, because obviously hindsight is 2020. And I think that what's so... I would be remiss if I didn't note this, which is we as an LGBTQIA plus community really are the only community whose history isn't taught in curriculums. You know, we really have to go out and we have to seek our history. We have to inform ourselves of that. And so, you know, it, it isn't lost on me that I stand on the shoulders of all of the queer and trans people who have come before me you know, and that predates Stonewall, you know, this incredible fight for liberation. And so I think that that to me is <clears throat> really critically important when thinking about, I think all of our work and especially my work on Pose is, you know, the number of young people, and I'm curious if this was experience for you, uh, Michael, working on, on looking, but there were so many over the years, the number of young people who asked me questions about, storylines on 
on pose. Like I remember in the first season, in our second episode, we have Blanca wanting to go to a gay bar to get a drink and she's being clocked as a trans woman. And so they're refusing service. And to this day, that is still an episode that I'm constantly having cis gay men approach me and say, did that really happen? And I'm like, it's not that it's, it happened then, it's still happening now, you know? And so I think that it's really important that we take a step back and say, you know, this is really what our history is. Because again, regardless of race or class or, or uh, you know, gender, you know, the, I mean, and obviously we're all intersectional beings, but the reality is that HIV AIDS, what? That was only 40 years ago. That wasn't that long ago. And so it's wild to me that, you know, if you weren't like all of us of a generation where we were right there, right as it began, then it somehow is just completely lost on you. Um, that there are still people who are being impacted by it today. Yeah. And I think that's sort of the, um, as, as you know, queer history always feels like an archaeological project, right? Like you're always constantly needing to sort of find it. Because um, as you say, it's, it's, it's nowhere there. Um, how do we balance this sort of needing to go back and to tell these stories that are maybe have been lost or have not told and telling stories that feel of the 21st century um, and that deal with, you know, the, the, the changing face of the epidemic, of the HIV um, sort of epidemic right now. Um, and I'm just curious how we, can we do both? What do we, what do we need to we be have doing? To. We have to do both. You know, unfortunately, like all of us, as Stephen was saying, we're people who kind of remember what happened and we kind of saw the face of it um, in our lifetimes. It's our responsibility to speak double for the generation we lost. Like, I feel like I, I mean, not that I don't want to do panels. I like doing this kind of stuff. I'm an actor, do you know what I mean? But I'm also now an activist because I have to be, because there's not another voice. There's a voice missing that I feel responsible to replace. And so I think the more we tell these stories, I mean, it's with everything. It's any kind of representation. I happen to see it tenfold because I see it as an Italian. I see it as a big guy. I see it as a, a queer person. And I see it as a character who, uh, someone who played someone who had HIV. I see it from all these different perspectives of people who are not seen places. Like Steven said, he's still searching for himself on, on, on TV. We have to keep telling these stories until it's the fact that we have a sitcom where everything's light and the mom has to take her pill in the morning because she happens to be HIV positive and it becomes that normal. You know, we have to keep telling stories to sort of like uh, work against the stigmas that are out there against um, the LGBTQ community and, uh, and other minorities. I think, I think too, like there's a really great, um, I don't know. I think one of the magic things about Pose that Steven does so amazingly is barreling in to that time with so much joy. And that like, that's the true legacy of those people um, who lived through that time. And that, um, you know, I really think it's until pretty recently that, that like, the joy was sort of like tucked under the tragedy and like the sort of what's the word like heart mending. Like we've, I think like a lot of stories started to move past stigma, but like, I feel like it's only recently with like pose and uh, it's a sin. Maybe like, are we like understanding that like, so many there was so much fun and like that was the true legacy of all the people that uh we lost you know 
I turn to the One Archives often for inspiration, and they did a, a show on posters during HIV/AIDS, and you, you know, go to it thinking, "Oh, this is going to be really a, a downer," and it was just the opposite, and it, you know, reinforces and reminds you that um, there were really kind of amazing ways that artists and activists were informing everyone about how to protect oneself and they were doing it across the spectrum of uh, uh, LGBTQ AI plus people. And it's such a great reminder and it really speaks to what Stephen was saying about, you know, we, we owe our, our, our work and our stories to those people who really fought hard. And um, so I appreciate that on Pose because it reminds us that we're here not just because you know we got here or what we did ourselves, but there are many people who really fought and were brutalized in the process and still are. So I think that's what's so wonderful about you know the the shows that the, that you all did on looking and, and pose. And I think to Michael's point about the joy, you know, and and I suppose it's upon all of us as creatives to. Re- reframe, recenter, rewrite the narrative is that, you know, our narratives are always rooted in our traumas. And I know that for me, that has become really exhausting. It's like, I'm just, I'm tired of turning on the television and seeing another narrative where, you know, again, we're, we're struggling, you know, and we're slogging through life. And it's like, no, it's, it, we are like a series of multitudes. Right. And so we, you know, yes, we can have moments that are sad and disheartening, but we also have pleasures and joy. And I think especially as, you know, as a queer community, as queer and trans people, it's like we've just never been given that that kind of framing, you know, and it's only now where you have a an abundance. And I think it, I'm saying this, acknowledging that there still could be more, but, you know, there's so many more of us now who are out and working in the community, working in this industry and creating our own work. You know, we're no longer asking for a seat at the, you know, at the straight table. We're just creating our own damn queer table, which is lovely. And so I think as a result of doing that, you're, to Michael's point, you're seeing so much more of the truth of our community because we are the ones telling our own story now. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I have a question for Stephen. I'm I'm so curious since since we were allowed to cross talk, um, uh, given permission to cross talk. I'm like I'm really curious about how you talked with execs about HIV/AIDS in the like very beginning of the show. Like, how did you pitch it out as like I don't know, just like what were the keywords and how did you um, talk about it as something that people would want to watch, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like how, like was joy and pleasure a part of that sort of like discourse or like, how did you talk about it? Yeah, that's an interesting question because the, the truth is that the, the elements of joy and family really came in post meeting Ryan Murphy, <laughs> who helped me to reframe the, the original version of the show was much darker and grittier. Um, you know, the, the truth is that the show at its 
at the very beginning, at its simplest, for me was always an investigation into the HIV AIDS epidemic mm. in New York in the 80s through the lens of black and brown queer and trans people. Um, and, you know, I, my fear was that just hearing that as a log line that people would just turn off, that that would not be particularly interesting or that would seem a little, you know, um, what's the entry point, right, for an audience. And so it made sense to then locate all of those characters within Ballroom, which is vibrant and joyful and just, you know, it just has all this energy. Um, and so I think that's the way to counter it. You know, I think there was less fear and concern around these characters navigating this period of time because we were going to get all this color and and vibrancy through the Ballroom community and 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 those particular moments on the show. So they're really, to be honest, it really wasn't that difficult. I think that the, the, the harder part, to be honest, was that it was a period piece. You know, the question more often than not was like, why, why the eighties? Like, why can't it be, you know, at that time, 2015, 2016. Um, but it felt important for me for the show to be a historical document, if you will. And so I think in the same way that like Danny was talking about on looking, you all being the very first people to talk about prep, right? And so, you know, there are conversations that happen on looking that that show now becomes a time capsule to a very particular period in our queer history. You know, for me, it was important to look back and capture that period of our community as well. Mm -hmm. I have to say the, the scene in uh, Pose where, um, Pray Tell goes to visit all the rocks. Um, mm, at Heart Island. At Heart Island. That resonated so hard with my mom. And I always use my mom as like the parameter for America. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if she knows who you are, then you're probably famous. Um, <laughs> she's still calling. She's still calling. <laughs> she's still out there like Brian Seacrest. Like, she don't know nothing, you know? But she knows that show. And like, she talks about Heart Island and about about the poignancy of that. And that sits with her now when she when she hear stories about people who with HIV AIDS, she thinks about that moment. And I think it's so important because you're bringing um, history to the masses. Like, you know, these are stories that were uh, told just amongst, uh, you know, black and, uh, black and brown queer people with the exception of Mary Paris's burning. And, now, and then, then queer people as extended family. But now here you're able to reach like everyone and let them care about somebody the way I cared about Pedro. That's why our stories, all these, all these stories are so important. Because people, you're inviting these stories into your home, into your dinner table. You're watching them and experiencing them with your family. Both my mother and I are friends of Pray Tell, you know? So it's like, it becomes something where like you, you become, you, you get, you get drawn in. And I think that's why I, I had, you know, I, I do AIDS watch every year. Um, I, just because of COVID the past two years, I haven't, I've only done, it's been done virtually, but I go and I lobby Congress on behalf of HIV and AIDS ever since looking. Um, my my role with the show is over, but my role as a queer person in the fight against stigma and um, is not, you know. So mm -hmm. uh, doing that, I've heard so many of these stories and I've learned um, uh, so many amazing things. And it's it's us that opens the door. It's these stories that open the door to do that. I had political aspirations being there, realizing, you know, how much needs to be done. But we have more effect and more power where we are in this position on this panel than we do in Washington. We don't have to worry about somebody who's paying for our election campaigns or, you know, signing this bill so this bill could get passed and then they sign this bill so this bill, none of that. We could tell our stories the way we want to tell them. 
And I think that that, that can make the people rise up and vote for the right thing or ask for the right thing and, and correct the right thing. So um, uh, I think that's one of the reasons it's so important, the work that, that you do. Speaking of moms, I just wanted to add that I have a friend who uh, is, I think he's in his mid twenties, person of color from South LA. And he said that Pose was the show that opened up the dialogue with him and his mother because um, he, he lives with HIV and had never, and had had a lot of different uh, obstacles to connecting with his mother, but they both got invested in the characters of Pose and that became their show that they would watch together. And mm -hmm. that was the way they started communicating about his living with HIV, which also was his way of communicating with me about living with HIV, right? I didn't know that actually until he told me about that experience. So, um, yeah, I just think uh, kudos to you, of course, Stephen, but also like, as you say, Danny, uh, we have to make this a vein of storytelling, not something that are just like dots uh, that come up periodically. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. And I, you know, I think that that is the, that is the beauty and the power of the work that we all do, you know, is that like we get to be, we're vessels, you know, to the, the stories kind of come through us and then we get to reflect back, you know, each other's humanity. And that, I mean, how, how incredible and how powerful and, and how fortunate are we to be able to do that work? You know, that, that is not lost on me. It feels all the more important for us to be doing that work for each other, you know, for our own community, because the reality is like, we, we all are invested in each other and in our own community. I don't always feel that investment from everyone else, from everyone on the outside. And so if we ourselves are not doing it, no one else will do it for us. It speaks less to HIV than it does to just representation in general, but it's a charming story, so I'm just compelled to tell it. But I had somebody come up to me um, and be like, uh, no, well, somebody wrote me a letter and said, don't get it twisted, this is a fan letter. But I saw Mean Girls like a million years ago, and I don't really remember you in it, but I'm sure you were good. And I don't know what an Eddie Bear is. But I had somebody come up to me on the dance floor who's way out of my league and say, you're just like Eddie Bear, come with me. And we've been dating for three months. So keep doing whatever the hell it is that you're doing. <laughs> and I just think it's just so funny how a storyline through osmosis of another person could affect another person's life. Like uh, who hasn't even seen the show. It's, it's not even about just a teachable moment, but it's about just like, like, sp like spreading the awareness that these kind of people exist makes the people who are existing like that have an easier life. Yeah. And I think, I don't know if any of us can improve on sort of a, th these lovely stories that are, that you guys are, are sharing. And I think it's a perfect sort of note to end on uh, about the, the power of great storytelling about television and about sort of bringing uh, all of these elements into what we want to be seeing both on our screens, but also on our lives. So I want to take again, the chance to Thank you all for a lovely conversation and for everyone watching. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, and that's it for us today. Thank you for listening to ATX TV's original series, The TV Campfire. To watch these panels and more, please visit youtube.com backslash ATX TV. For details on the festival, go to atxfestival.com. 
and information on our membership program can be found at atxfestival.com backslash membership. Follow us at ATX Festival on all social media. As always, please rate and review. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening and a simple click or brief comment can help us grow and have other TV lovers like yourselves find us. Feels like enough information, right? Yep. Till next time, keep watching TV.